Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Meow Ludo Disco Gamma Meow Meow talks about nanoterrariums and biobiz. But first up, here's news of the Gartner hype cycle. Gartner is a consulting company that releases a hype report on trends in technology each year, about the next five years. This year, its big five trends to watch are democratised artificial intelligence, digitised ecosystems, do-it-yourself biohacking, transparently immersive experiences, and ubiquitous infrastructure. Democratised AI artificial intelligence. Thanks to the open source and maker community, Artificial intelligence applications will become available to everybody, not just corporations. Gartner predicts smart robots capable of working alongside humans without causing injury, delivering room service or working in warehouses. This development will allow organisations to assist, replace or redeploy human workers to more valuable tasks that are harder for robots. They also predict the rise of self-driving cars that can deal with limited circumstances at first, but developing into cars and trucks that can drive on the road and handle anything a human driver would be expected to handle. Digitised ecosystems, like app phone stores, platforms generally allow many other businesses to provide ways to use a product. Gartner see the idea of a virtual reality digital twin for real-world objects being useful in maintenance and taking off in other areas. They expect millions of objects to have digital twins in the next five years. Do-it-yourself biohacking. Gartner see 2018 as just the beginning of a transhuman age where hacking biology and extending humans will increase in popularity and availability. They see this range from simple diagnostics to neural implants and be subject to legal and societal questions about ethics and humanity. These biohacks will fall into four categories. Technological augmentation, nutrigenomics, the interactions between what you eat and how your genes are expressed, experimental biology, and grinder biohacking, implanting machines. For example, biochips hold the possibility of detecting diseases from cancer to smallpox before the patient even develops symptoms. These chips are made from an array of molecular sensors on the chip surface that can analyse biological elements and chemicals. Also new to the hype cycle this year is biotech, artificially cultured and biologically inspired muscles. Though still in lab development, This technology could eventually allow skin and tissue to grow over a robot exterior, making it sensitive to pressure. Transparently immersive experiences, blurring the lines between people, businesses and things. Not sinister at all. Gartner see this as extending and enabling a smarter living work and life experience. Gartner suggests connected homes will interlink devices, sensors, tools and platforms that learn from how humans use their house. 
ubiquitous infrastructure. The always-on, always-available, limitless infrastructure environment has changed the business landscape. Gartner hypes new types of computing in our infrastructure. Semiconductor devices inspired by neurobiological architecture, which can deliver extreme performance for things like deep neural networks, using less power and offering faster performance than conventional computing. In several years' time, exponentially faster quantum computers will have a huge impact on optimization, machine learning, encryption, analytics, and image analysis. Uber drivers will be replaced by autonomous flying taxis, carrying biohackers, trying out their latest quantum implant apps, munching on food that makes them healthier and smarter, working on their next projects. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Nanoterrariums and biobiz. I visited molecular biologist, biofoundry founder, biohacker and TV celebrity Meow Ludo Meow Meow to talk about biology. I mentioned I'm growing miracle berry fruit trees, one from a cutting and the other from a seed, and Meow told me about his experiments with nanoterrariums and how they relate to running a biohacking business and space stations. So we were just talking about the differences in you know, growing plants from a cutting and growing plants from a seed. And uh, some of the stuff that I'm most interested in with bio and biohacking is about systems and how do, how do things grow into systems. So I was looking up a lot of stuff around nano-aquariums. These tiny little cookie jar-sized aquariums. And I came here because I was really interested in terrariums. The ones that got me most excited were light bulb terrariums. So you take a light bulb, you get your pliers, you smash off the ceramic on the back, you twist out the electrode and you smash the glass a little bit. You've got to be careful that you don't use a screwdriver and smash the whole thing to pieces. It's incredibly tedious, which for some reason I always end up taking hobbies that are incredibly tedious. And my favorite terrariums were sealed. I got inspired by, you probably saw the thing bouncing around the internet. There was a guy who had a completely sealed terrarium for 40 years. I had a plant growing inside it. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. Especially when I've read things like Biodome or the experiment they did where they had a dome and, you know, within a few years, the thing was completely overrun by weeds. Not only that, I'd read that when the people were in it trying to live in this enclosed environment with a desert environment and a tropical rainforest and a temperate forest and so on, that they ended up with not enough oxygen in the air. How do we approach these complex systems that maybe we don't even fully understand and we maybe especially don't understand the interactions between the complex systems? How do we create these long-term self-sustaining environments? And I noticed that there were some people that could get cookie jar aquariums running, but they approached the problem in a very different way. So there were people that had, there were two types of functioning aquariums. One had a huge external sump. So what they do is they have a cookie jar aquarium, but the water is pumped out into a separate tank 
that is filled with bioballs, which essentially provides more surface area for bacteria to breed. So you have the equivalent of a home swimming pool, but what you see is just a very small component. So it's able to filter this out. It adds greater buffering concentration. But the other people took a very interesting approach. They chucked in this stuff called live rock, which is what you have to grow corals on. And they didn't seed it with any corals that they could see. So they had a sealed container with lights. It's very important because corals are a symbiotic organism. So it has photosynthetic parts and parts that require it to eat other things. So that's like you or I. Uh, We eat things that make their own energy, but it does both. So what they did was they have this sealed aquarium, but they didn't seed it with too much. So they didn't kind of create what it was meant to look like, like these other ones. And those were successful because as they grow and go through, they form their own equilibrium, their own homeostasis. So one interesting thing when we're talking about the plants, when we we get a cutting, it's grown for a certain set of conditions. But a seedling maybe can sometimes be more robust because it can adapt itself to grow in the conditions that it's put in. And I think this is an important lesson for when we're looking at self-contained environments because Maybe the trick isn't to decide what, whether it's a temperate rainforest or a desert. Maybe the trick is to kind of grow what grows well in there and then adapt from a seed bank the species that we, we might want to introduce and we introduce one element at a time or grow 500 things, understanding that some of them will be paired back. The biggest problem in the biodome was that one species overran all the rest. But if we can look at these smaller examples as experiments, maybe it's part of a process towards it hitting an equilibrium. So maybe we need to seed these these colonies before we go, or we uh, approach the whole problem in a different way, that it's a complex environment that we don't understand. So how do we promote certain environments and how do we decrease the likelihood of other environments? So this is the sort of thing that can be used both for having an enclosed environment on a space station or in a Mars colony or wherever, but also for remediation in places where there's been some sort of disaster that's wiped out the local environment. And I think that's a really interesting point that you make there about uh, the, the applications that researching extraterrestrial colonization has on Earth, that every time we, we do so- solve a problem in one place, it can carry across to the other. And in permaculture, they have this beautiful uh, saying, which is the problem is the solution. So let's, for example, a, a cockroach infestation isn't a problem. It's the solution to feeding your chickens. So you're always looking at the problem as actually a solution to something else that you haven't asked yet. And this is great when you're building closed circle economies where everything has to feed into each other else, is that you don't just have one thing that exists in isolation. Everything is in a web that feeds back into itself. Yeah, at home I have nepenthes, uh, tropical pitcher plants that eat the cockroaches. So I'm in inner West Sydney, but I don't have a cockroach problem. Which is absolutely fantastic. And I think that bioterrorism solutions and biosolutions to environmental problems have a bit of a bad history in Australia. You know, we, we kind of took this approach when we introduced the cane toad, most notably to eat the cane beetle. Problem is we didn't really understand that problem super well, but it was, it was a step in the right direction in their way of thinking, which is how do we, instead of just killing this thing, actually create a, a chain of things that is good for the environment. And I think this is 
missing from Australia and probably a lot of the world at the moment, which is how do we think about closing these things? Because they don't always on the surface make the most economic sense, but sometimes they can. And one place we've seen this is in some mushroom companies taking the coffee grounds from cafes and using this as the food for mushrooms. So you start to create a closed economy where the waste from the cafe actually becomes a product for the cafe. And I love these solutions. These are the things that make me most happy in the world. And a lot of my time is actually spent thinking about uh, Martian colonies and about how to change all the things we think of as trash and waste and thinking about how do they add back into the system to make a more robust system. So in New South Wales, we have a drought and we have farmers who can't grow fodder for their cattle and their sheep. But we also have people mowing their lawns in the cities and throwing the grass away. Couldn't all that grass feed the cattle and sheep? Yeah, it most definitely could. There's other things that come into play when we start thinking about these as solutions. So one of the biggest things I think of when I'm looking at agricultural technologies is the embedded carbon. So I'm a bigger fan of agriculture out in the bush. The reason for this is that even though you might reduce the carbon by growing in the city, it doesn't make much sense when you think about all the additives and components that need to go into there. And it's not to say that people shouldn't grow stuff in the city because it has other benefits. It's about saying that our food security should be based in the bush. Now, if we're thinking about things like grass and hay, I wonder how much grass we generate in the city and how, how expensive it would be to transport it there. And that's one of the really unfortunate things about being in entrepreneurship is you always kind of have to think about what is the economic driver. So there's probably enough feed around Australia to get it to the cows, but by the time it gets to the cows, it's no longer cost efficient. And then that makes the meat unaffordable and then people won't buy it. Could that work? It, it's definitely a solution. And I think one of the hard things is having to sacrifice some really good ideas because they don't make sense when it comes down to the numbers and that really sucks. But if we had something where you had carbon credits or, you know, some sort of emissions trading scheme, you might find that it all of a sudden becomes profitable for people to ship it from the city to the bush because the internal transport of the traditional feed wouldn't make sense then economically. And this is why it's really great for us to think more broadly about things like carbon is because some solutions which weren't economically viable all of a sudden do. Like you might get carbon credits for growing the grass in your house and then you could use those carbon credits to transfer it through to the farm. So you might not make a profit, but what you might do is reduce some of the tax involved in feeding the animals. And that, that, that's a great way of thinking about policy. To say it's not cost effective is interesting because there's no alternative. So at the moment, what's going to happen is the sheep and the cows are going to get killed because there's no feed to give them. So it's feed where there's no feed, and yet it's not viable to feed them. Yeah, I think, I think it's, there's always feed. It's just the cost of the feed. So we, we, we can buy feed from overseas. Like grain, for example, is you know, traded all around the world. There's a lot of grain in Australia, I'll tell you right now, huge amounts that we export. So there is grain available and there is, there is food available. The question is how much do people want to pay for it? And that's when that question comes in about, I'm going to kill them 
not because there's not feed, it's because I don't want to pay the amount for feed because all of a sudden the feed becomes more expensive than the amount that I'll recuperate by selling the animal. So I may as well kill the animal and make a net loss. And, and it's tragic. It's terrible. Like kangaroos are still doing all right in Australia, even if there is a drought. So there's food, there's food around. It's just about the, the way that the money flows. And that kind of sucks when you have to factor that in to the ways you solve problems because sometimes a really clever solution isn't always the solution that will work because the first question an investor will ask you once you get your idea together is to look at the financials. And when you look at that, it can be really a big kind of hit to your idea. And this is why I encourage when you're doing entrepreneurship and especially like with biohacks and things is to have a problem focused approach. So the best thing for creative people is you look at, you might look at a problem and you might go, Oh wow, I've come up with a great solution. Or you might even just find a solution. That's often the way I do it. But it doesn't always mean that there's a problem or the problem justifies the solution that's there. So the way that we're kind of taught in entrepreneurship to approach problems is to have a very open-ended way of finding them. So a really good thing, if you say, for example, you wanted to start an ag tech business and you're, you're a hacker and you've got some knowledge around plants, or you've got some knowledge around animals, the best thing for you to do is call the people who will end up becoming your customers and asking them, what type of problems do you encounter on a daily basis? How much does that cost you? When you start to do this, you start to find the problems that are worth solving to create a good business. And that, that's, that's the best way to approach stuff. But unfortunately, creative people who want to build stuff want to just build stuff. And I'm, I'm guilty of that more than anyone. One of the questions I was working with an implant company, we wanted to put implants in cows and the question came up, well, maybe an implant isn't the best solution, but we're an implant company. So you know what? We're making implants. <laughs> so... So you kind of have to squeeze the solution into the problem a little bit if what drives you to run that business is a certain thing. So if what drives you to make a business about uh, processing agricultural waste from the suburbs, you might find that there's actually different problems that the solution wants to go into. So this might be around power generation. So using a, a biodigester to take the lawn clippings and then produce energy out of that. And then as a result, use that to grow food close to the source, for, for example. Or create compost, for example. Or create energy, so a form of natural gas. So you have this carbon neutral kind of power generation. I think that if you're good at something, you should definitely apply it to a problem. But working out how to do that can be a really tricky thing. And it's something that I wish I'd learned a lot earlier in my hacking career. So to think about the ways of approaching business when you're not a business person. And now I only do businesses that make economic sense. And it's actually hindering because I come up with so many great ideas all day, but so few of them actually pass the sniff test for, for what's going to be a good business. And businesses don't always have to make money either. You know, there's a lot of not-for-profit stuff that doesn't make sense that is, still has value. You know, I've debated people in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, oh, but if it has value, you can extract the value. And I don't believe that's the case. I think there are things that like, like science research, like biofoundry, things that don't necessarily create monetary value, but have other social benefits and other forms of value that don't translate into a dollar sign. A lot of the work that we do in biofoundry are called hero projects that are just for the good of the world and don't necessarily have commercial outcomes. Although some very clever people inside biofoundry have been working out ways that we can do that. One place we see this a lot is with algae. So you know, someone from inside the, the building that Biofoundry's in 
was talking to me and I was getting really excited about algae. You know, algae is fantastic. It can literally undo global warming. If you think about what, what fossil fuels are made from, they were once upon a time plants, mainly. And when we burn them, we create carbon dioxide and light. Algae literally undoes that. It takes light and carbon dioxide and puts it back into plant form, essentially. It's not from the plant kingdom, but it reverses what we're doing with fossil fuels. So he said to me, oh, you know, algae, I've been waiting for the algae boom for 30 years and it's still not here. And when I started looking into it, the, the biggest reason is that the main use for algae at the moment is for biofuels. Everyone wants biofuels. How much is fuel worth a liter? It's a very low value product. And we think about it, it drives the whole world, but it's a low value product. When you consider having to make algae to make biofuels, if you only sell the product for a dollar a liter, it takes a lot of algae to make a liter of fuel. And if you're only selling it for a dollar or so a liter, you're not making a huge amount back. You have to work out ways to make biofuel the byproduct. So you have to make it make medicines and then You've got all this fuel left over that you can sell for a dollar a liter when you're selling medicines for you know, tens of thousands of dollars a liter. So I think biohacking at the moment is in a really interesting place. You know, there's a lot of biohackers have been around for a, a fair while now, you know, getting on towards five years. We're yet to see a lot of real products come out of, of biohacking. We're seeing a lot of people still kind of at the early stages and very few products translate from idea into supermarket shelves or medical products there's there's good reason for this you know biotech is very difficult it's it's poorly understood there's some traditional forms of biotech like cheese and wine and all these things breads but they've kind of been around for a really long time you know thousands of years and they kind of were the low-hanging fruit now to, to do serious biohacking projects there's a lot of money that needs to be involved even at the lowest levels it doesn't discourage people from doing it. It just means that it takes a long time and it takes a lot of money. And I think we're going to see some cool stuff in the next, you know, kind of three to five years, but I don't think we're going to see anything really, really impressive until then. So people should get in touch with their local biohacking lab and learn something and try a project. I think they should start their own biohacking lab. So one of the awesome things that we're, we're seeing though is that uh, the Ghana report just put biohacking on the start of their hype cycle. So Ghana report, I think it is. But the cool thing about this, they have this hype report and it looks like a kind of a camel's hump with a plateau. So there's, uh, the, the idea is that all technology follows a hype cycle. We can think about it like the dot-com boom, if anyone was around, or the dot-com bubble, depending on which side of it you were on. And you get this inflated peak of expectation. And it's basically when businesses start to get involved with technologies and they start to see the potential. And what happens is you enter this hype cycle. So everyone goes, wow, this is fantastic. It's going to go here. It's going to go there. You know, blockchain's a really great recent example of this. It can solve all the world's problems. So you see all this money pile into it and expectations get overinflated. So people think the technology is more developed than it is. People start thinking that they can apply it to anything and that everyone can make money out of this. And then it hits a peak where everyone realizes that, oh, maybe it's a little bit early. So you start to see people pulling money out. And then you get this trough of disappointment where everyone goes, oh, it's worthless. It was never going to be worth anything. And this happened with the internet, you know? And then it 
levels off and it comes back up. And what you get after the trough of disillusionment, you get this plateau of productivity. And this is when people start to really understand the technology from a science and a business sense. You get this harmony where you get really good products come out and you get everyone on the same page about what can be done and how much things are worth. I'm excited for all the bio stuff to finally hit the start of this curve because I don't care if everyone thinks that it's, it can do more than it can and then get disillusioned because I want to get to that plateau of productivity where we can see what it can really do because biotech's been waiting for this since the 80s. It's been this you know, you know, kind of shadow in the room and if the hype cycles to be believed, the best biotech projects are yet to come. And if they're just starting now around human augmentation, genetic engineering, it could be a really exciting five to 10 years. And that's what they're predicting is about five to 10 years. I'm an optimist. So I want to ride through the peak, ride through the trough and then come out the other side. And anyone who goes to a biohack space now is kind of really likely to have a job on the plateau period and a very short term job during the peak. So you should save your money during the peak. I would start a business during the peak. And then when you think it's time, maybe, yeah, put the money somewhere else, wait for it to crash. But the knowledge and the experience you gain when there's a lot of money in an industry is invaluable. They can't take that away from you unless they get really good with their memory hacking. So meow, Ludo, meow, meow. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. I can't wait to be back again. And it's exciting times ahead for diffusion and science in general. That was meow, Ludo, meow, meow, molecular biologist and biohacker. Meow will be back soon to talk about his Opal card adventures. You'll find a link to the Gartner hype cycle of future trends in the show notes. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please, please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 26 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania, and my local station, 2RDJ, in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. 
Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.